Hey friends, welcome to the Make Life Matter podcast. I'm your host, Angela Donatio, Bible teacher, author, and adventure junkie. Join me each week for compelling conversations with leading voices that encourage us to ground our worth in the word instead of the narrative of the world. Together, we'll discover miracles in life's messy moments and make our lives matter no matter what. Here's this week's episode. Welcome back to the Make Life Matter podcast. My guest today is no stranger to most of us. Sheila Walsh is a best-selling author who sold almost 6 million books. She served as the co-host of a national television program and a course speaker on the wildly popular Women of Faith touring event with millions in attendance. But what most don't know is that when Sheila was just five years old, her father suffered a brain thrombosis that changed him from a fun, kind dad to an angry, unpredictable, abusive stranger who would spit in her face and pull her hair out. He eventually committed suicide. Even as a successful TV host, author, and speaker, Sheila battled clinical depression and at her lowest point, spent a month in a psychiatric hospital for suicidal thoughts and depression. In her new book, Holding On When You Want to Let Go, Sheila talks openly about how the, how the global pandemic magnified and exacerbated her struggles and how she continues to hold on to hope each day. Thank you, Sheila, so much for joining me here on the Make Life Matter podcast. Oh, Angela, it's just lovely to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, we've already uh, kind of just shared privately that we both have a son named Christian, and <laughs> I love so many of your stories. And I was blessed to receive an advanced copy of Holding On When You Want to Let Go. Uh, and so I laughed out loud reading this story that you shared about a fish that he had and the the fish sadly met his demise and in your coming up with a way to tell him what happened, you wrote a letter from the perspective of the fish that he had gone to join the fish circus, (laughs) fish circus in the big apple. And Sheila, I I literally laughed out loud because we have both, (laughs) we have both, as you said, housed all the plagues in Egypt. And, uh, but, but I thought it was a very poignant story because you talked about cleaning out this fishbowl, setting it aside, and you, you wrote this and holding on when you feel alone. It took the long months of isolation in 2020 for me to finally pay attention to that distant rumble in my soul and put that puzzle piece in place. As the weeks turned to months, I became aware of the fact that one of the hardest things about lockdown for many people was being alone for the first time. I heard it on the news. I read it on my social media channel. People were lonely, missing being able to be with close friends, being able to to hug each other. And although I missed our son being home, he's a graduate in graduate school in Houston, I wasn't experiencing the same ache as many were. Then I realized why. I always feel lonely. I always have. Sheila, that, that just hit me like a ton of bricks when I read that. Can you share more about this, what led you to write this and what encouragement you have for so many listeners that are experienced this pandemic of loneliness. Yeah, that, that would be my, my privilege. I, I found that when the pandemic hits, for the first few weeks, I actually kind of enjoyed the freedom because I'm used to traveling every weekend and ministering to women and speaking at conferences. And suddenly I got to stay in my pajamas and, you know, mm-hmm. no makeup, binge watching the great British baking show, all that <laughs> stuff. But then I found myself really kind of spiraling again and finding myself struggling once more with with depression. And the interesting thing about the fish story that you mentioned is there was something about cleaning out that bowl that 
it was like a, a little warning bell. Like, what was it about that that I found myself identifying with? Because I could put, before our fish red died, I could put my hand on the glass and he could swim past, but I couldn't touch him. And I realized that there was so much about that that I felt was a representation of my life, mm-hmm. that I had built a wall around myself where I could look out and see people um, and they could see me, but they couldn't reach back in. And part of that was to do with... Um, just the tragedy of what happened in my childhood with my father. My father was just this amazing, kind, funny, loyal, loved, loved the Lord. I mean, sometimes when I go back to Scotland, I still meet people who say, I give my life to Christ listening to your father sing. Mm. But he had this severe brain aneurysm and stroke, and it totally changed his personality. He went from being a loving dad to a confusing and ultimately violent stranger. And he took his rage out on me before he was carried away to a psych hospital where he committed suicide. So there was something about that, that the question I was left with was, what did my dad see in me that that made him hate me? And then, so when I gave my life to Christ, my thought became, if your earthly dad, who once really loved you, could apparently hate you in the end, that might be possible with God. Mm. So I, I need to be the perfect Christian. I need to get it all right, so that God doesn't turn on me. But I, even when I co-hosted the 700 Club for five years with Pat Robertson, which I loved, I was a very well-known, desperately lonely person. Mm. Because my thing was, if you got too close to me, you would see whatever it was that my father saw. And I even at one point, because I felt so desperately lonely, I decided to fast and pray for 21 days and ask the Lord, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you. If you'll show me, then then I will repent. But it felt during that whole 21 days that I wasn't um, I wasn't judged and I wasn't comforted. It felt as if heaven was silent. And I think that's one of the most devastating things that can happen for all believers. There's times when it feels as if heaven is silent. And that's what I think a lot of people have experienced during this pandemic. Mm. So although you've experienced seasons of loneliness, I know you became so much uh, so much healthier in your awareness of God's love for you that was tainted by the lies that the enemy told you. What resurfaced? What do you think about 2020 was different for you, Sheila? Because I think it affected us all in different ways, whether we've always struggled with loneliness or all of a sudden we found ourselves there. Could you tell what was different about that and maybe what is different now than maybe even a year ago? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what I didn't realize, Angela, was how much I enjoy, how much I benefit from being the presence of my sisters. You know, whenever I go out and speak and they always say to me, do you want to stay in the green room till it's your time? And I'm like, no, let me come out and be part of worship. Because yeah. there's just something about, you know, being in the presence of God with, with your sisters in Christ. And also always when I'm there, I'll always spend time listening to women share their stories and we'll pray together. And I suddenly found that I, I felt the weight of that being gone. So I asked the Holy Spirit, um, how do I live in these days? I knew how to live when life was what I understood to be normal. But suddenly when all the doors were closed and, and I was just home, I, I wasn't sure how to live in those days. And so I'm, I'm a great student of people who've written about faith throughout the generations and throughout the centuries. That's one of the things that Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, who was my spiritual mentor, she used to say to me, 
Don't just read what's current, go as far back as you can. Hmm. And I read this thing by um, a guy from the fourth century, his name was Athanasius. And he said, while most of scripture speaks to us, Psalms speak for us. And so what I began to do is going out on our balcony um, every morning and I read three Psalms out loud because I think it's good for your ears to hear what your eyes are reading. And it's also, it's a declaration of what you believe to be true, no matter what might be going on in your circumstances. Mm. That even though I gave my life to, to Christ when I was 11, and I've had all these years of the faithfulness of God, I don't think I've ever appreciated the living word of God more than I do in these days. Because mm. I hold God's word up as a plumb line against whatever's Whatever we hear about in the news, whatever's the news, but whatever social media is saying, this is what I know to be true, mm. no matter what might be true for a moment. Mm, that's so good. That's so good for all of us, Sheila. There's so many poignant moments, funny moments in the book, gut-wrenching moments. I was actually on a deck drinking my coffee, reading that section about you going out every morning. And I think that consistency that you speak of, um, that you're encouraging us to have, when all of circumstances around us are so unpredictable, the consistency of staying in God's word, we talked here on the podcast about grounding our worth in the word instead of the narrative of the world. And that is what's going to be our sustaining grace and strength through everything. There's another story I love, and you grew up in Scotland. So this was completely unfamiliar to me and maybe to many of our listeners, but in a chapter that you call holding on when you've messed up, you talk about a bummer lamb. And I want to read a section in just a second, but tell me what a bummer lamb is, because I think this will even resonate more once they, once they know that. Yeah, my mom, after my father's suicide, my, my mother was a farm accountant. So she would do the, far, the accounts for the farmers and the shepherds. And so I would get to go and watch all the new spring lambs being born. And there's something that happens. And it's, I discovered it happens in New Zealand. It happens all around the world. Every now and again, a ewe will give birth to a lamb and immediately reject it. And the shepherd can try and reintroduce the lamb, but the ewe will literally kick the lamb away. So if he doesn't intervene, the lamb will die, not of hunger, but of a broken spirit. So the shepherd will take the lamb into the house and he will keep it warm by the fire and feed it with a bottle. And at least one time during the day, he will hold the lamb close to his heart. So the lamb hears a heartbeat. And um, when the lamb is strong enough, it goes back to be with the rest of the sheep. But when the shepherd comes out in the morning, and I've seen this, and he'll call sheep, sheep, sheep. The first ones to run to him are the bummer lambs mm. because they know his voice. I love that. And you said this, I will be a bummer lamb for the rest of my life. But that's not the bad news. It's the best news. It's not that God loves his bummer lambs more than the rest of his flock. It's just that we actually dare to believe it. King David was a bummer lamb. Every man, woman, and child who realizes that they have messed up and have come to the shepherd just the way they are in transparent repentance will be held, will be loved back to life. We've heard his voice. We've been held close to his heart and we're sold out to him for life, missing pieces and all. Sheila, I thought that was so beautiful. Thank you for bringing us into that perspective and sharing that. And although I've never seen it, I will resonate with you. I will be a bummer lamb because it means we're hearing his heartbeat and we know his voice in such an intimate way. Another section I love is in held by the promises of God, you write, fair doesn't live here, but Jesus does. How does this change the way that we hold on when we want to let go? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I saw. It's been such a joy 
to have my question, as I'm sure yours is to you, but to kind of um, walk beside him as his faith grew and shaped, you know, shaped and changed. And, and I remember the night that he and I were the only ones home when my father-in-law died. And Christian was, we drove behind the, the ambulance to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, we discovered that, you know, William was home. And Christian did what I expected in the beginning. He cried and cried. And then one day he pushed um, the our cat off the sofa, which wasn't like him. So I said, you want to go for a walk? And he said, yeah, okay. And so halfway through the walk, I said, Christian, are you angry? And he said, yes, I'm angry. He said, you told me God answers prayers. And I prayed, God, do not take my papa. And he died anyway. And I don't understand that. God is not fair. And I, he's actually said that at several points, once when he was at school, when something does. And I think there's not a human being alive who doesn't understand certain things are not fair. But that's where the gift of forgiveness comes in, because um, I think that so many of us think we have to forgive to be good Christian men and women. Forgiveness is God's gift to us to live in a world that's not fair, because fair doesn't live here. But Jesus does. And I think the bigger our picture of who Jesus is, it changes everything. If we're able to trust him and say, Lord, I don't understand that. I mean, I think of the people listening in right now, um, watching this, who are just like, this is, you know, what's going on right now? You know, I lost my job. How am I going to pay my bills? So many things. And we think, Lord, I want you to be fair. I think what God wants to give us is his presence because Jesus is present in the worst moments in life. That's so powerful, Sheila. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to make that kind of, uh, uh, I hate to use the word mantra, but I'm going to write that somewhere visible <laughs> for me because I know in my own life, we do, we look at God and want him to be fair. I know Jennifer Rostrad has a book, God is just not fair, but it is, it's that tension we have to hold as believers, as followers of Christ, that he is loving and kind and life is not fair and fair does not live here, but Jesus does. I think even for a mom to read your book, whether mental illness or depression or loneliness is even at the forefront, just the way that you have have deposited into your son as a, as a mother of a son who's now 21, just those stories um, spoke volumes to me. So thank you so much for that. We'll get right back to this week's episode. I want to help you make life matter with some free resources at AngelaDenadio.com. You'll also find my books, albums, and ways to connect. While you're there, join my online community and be the first to hear exciting updates. If you long to walk where Jesus walked and are ready for the Bible to come alive in ways you have never experienced before, journey with me and Carol McLeod to Israel in 2022. Get all the details at AngelaDenadio.com. One of the most impacting chapters for me, Sheila, was held by the God who rescues. And I shared with you earlier, I'm a survivor of a near-death health crisis, and so I've I've sensed not only that loneliness, which we can interpret as abandonment, even though we know mm-hmm. God can't abandon us. The enemy wants us to make us feel abandoned, but the, the, the powerful transformative knowledge that God rescues us. And so I'd just like mm-hmm. you to speak to that for a second. You talk about the pain of rescue and the power of trusting God. Can you just expound on that a little bit for us? Yeah. You know, there's so many situations that we would just say, Lord, please don't let this happen. But there's something, I mean, I went through a thing not so long ago where 
I came back from an event and I had just the worst headache I'd ever had in my life. And I didn't quite understand what was going on. And eventually, because it wouldn't shift, I, um, I went to the drop-in clinic with my husband. And the doctor asked a question, which I now know to be key. He said, is this the worst headache you've ever had? And I said, yeah. And he said, and then the next question changed the atmosphere. Has anyone in your family ever had a brain aneurysm? And I said, yes, my father. And I was immediately taken off to the emergency room. And within moments, I was in this room where I was supposed to be having this CAT scan and MRI and things. And there was something about that moment, because all I could reflect on was how that changed the dynamic in in our family. My dad went from the one that I threw myself into his arms to the one that I was afraid of every morning because I wasn't sure how he'd wake up. And I remember, and I thought, Lord, if this is going to happen to me, I mean, I don't want to be that to Christian or or to Barry. I mean, I can't bear that. And yet there was this, there's something about when you talk about burying the word of God deep in your heart. Mm. So it's there. And the technician said to me, okay, here's a panic button. He said, "Um, I'm going to be in the other room. So you're going to be alone in there. And in that moment, I thought, no, I am not. Mm. Now, I didn't say that in case he moved me to another area of the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew and as I'm being put into that metal tube, I found myself being able to reflect on what Christ did on the moments when it was hardest to pray. Mm. On the night when nobody else around him understood, but Christ knew he was going to face the only moment in eternity when his father would turn his face away. Mm. For the first time in eternity, Christ would be utterly alone. But here's what he did. He processed his pain in the presence of his father. He poured out his heart in the Garden of Gethsemane three times, which, as that's an olive grove, is significant. Olives are pressed three times to get every drop of oil. And because Christ poured out his pain to his father, he made space for grace. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so often we are in pain. We almost pull back from the Lord. I say, run to him. The harder the situation, the more you need rescue, run to the Father. And so that's what I did in that tube. I said, Lord, I didn't see this coming, but you did. And I trust you. You have a track record with me. And if this is about to happen, what I don't want, you love my son and my husband more than I ever could and me, and you will be there. And honestly, it was as if the peace of Christ filled that noisy place And when I got out, we discovered in a few hours that there was nothing. I'd just been working too hard. Mm. But I had the peace before the knowing. And I want people to know that, that you can have that God always has a rescue plan. He is the always God. It just doesn't always happen in our timing. But you will never be abandoned. You will never be alone. Hebrews 13, the Lord said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Mm, that's so powerful. Wow, that'll preach right there. We could say, <laughs> let's say it the Lord, amen, because that's just so to have the peace before the knowing. And even though there was nothing wrong, look at that kind of, you had to really face what would be maybe one of the worst possible. I mean, I'm just listening to you and imagining that for myself and for our listeners. And sometimes we don't understand why God asks us to face that. But I had a counselor once share with me many years ago, my husband, and I were at a wonderful center in Colorado. And he said, don't, don't pull back with your pain. Very similar to what you said, but press your pain into the heart of Jesus. 
And and that's what you're describing is move toward him with our pain. He can handle our pain um, and process it in his presence. And then that peace settles over you, regardless of the outcome. He gives us his his peace. And and I just love that story. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, here on the Make Life Matter podcast, we talk about not only grounding our worth in the word, which we've been kind of drilling down in today, but also discovering miracles in life's messy moments. And the greatest miracle is what you just shared, the peace of God, the grace Mm -hmm. of God even in the middle of, of the noise and the, and the chaos and everything that might be happening around us. But I love this quote that you said in uh, one of your chapters held by the God of miracles, miracles change our circumstances, obedience changes our hearts. And you wrote that in context about the woman with the issue of blood. And you talked about how her story was your story. Can you share with us just a little bit about that? Yeah, there's something about, you know, her story is so poignant to me, 12 years of suffering. Um, And she would, by this point in her life, her bones would be very thin, her skin would be fragile. You know, when you continue to lose so much blood, she would be very isolated. She wouldn't, you couldn't invite her around for a cup of coffee because you'd have to throw the cup out. She couldn't sit in a chair. The chair would be um, ritually unclean. So she had lived in this desperate loneliness, desperate situation for so, so long. And then she hears about this Jesus. She is actually breaking the law by being in the crowd that day. She's supposed to carry a bell and call out unclean, unclean. But what she does is with the little bit of faith that she has left, she reaches out and she just touches the tassel, the fringe at the end of Christ's robe, and she is instantly healed. And Jesus knows it. And it's just, it's amazing because he stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Lord, this is like a football crowd. Everybody's touching you. And he said, no, somebody touched me in faith. Mm. And, and that was what happened for me on that night when I was hospitalized for severe clinical depression in a psychiatric hospital, which was my greatest nightmare that would ever end up like my father. Mm. I remember that night on the floor and literally reaching out and touching the fringe of his garment mm. and knowing that um, it was in the place that I had most been afraid of became the place where I discovered what I'd been longing for, mm. which was a relationship with Jesus based on nothing I brought to the table. Mm. That was the greatest miracle of all, to discover with nothing left that you're fully loved. Wow, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. I think about anyone who's listening who feels like they're just, they're 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 at the end of their rope. They're, they're wondering the greatest nightmare, their fear. It's the divorce they didn't see coming. It's the prodigal child. It's the loss of a job. But to know that that can actually be the place where our deepest longings are met. Sheila, thank you for sharing that with us. I can't end this interview, which we'll wrap up in a couple minutes. This was one of the more difficult things that I read in your book. I was, I don't know if I was angry or just so frustrated that, that you would have encountered this and maybe it shouldn't have surprised me having been in ministry, but three decades, but you said in the chapter held by the one who changed everything. I was stunned by this question that people have asked you over and over. Are you fixed yet? Um, (laughs) 
It's painful for me to say it out loud. Honestly, Sheila, I was just mortified when I read that. So talk to us about why mental issues can't just quote unquote be fixed, how we as the body of Christ can understand better and respond in much more appropriate ways to individuals and families who are suffering from mental illness with with much more compassion. I think there's so much misunderstanding and, and I never, I didn't hear the question as a cruel question. I heard it within the context of our culture. And my answer that day was, no, I'm not fixed. I'm redeemed. It's Mm. much, much better. It's a Mm. bigger, bigger gift. If I had a brain tumor and I had a, an x-ray to show my church family, I would have a prayer meeting for healing, for miracles within five minutes, but mental illness is, is difficult for people to understand because it doesn't show up on a chart. And so um, there's times when people struggle with depression or with anxiety related to the way they are living. You know, it's like they know that they're living against the will of God and they're like, you know what, I don't care. I'm going my own way. But clinical depression is different than that. It simply means that your brain is not producing enough of the right chemicals. So it helps you balance when you have medication. It balances that. You would never dream of walking up to somebody wearing glasses and saying, where's your face? Because that's simply correcting someone's vision. And it's the same with with mental illness. It's very treatable, but often we shame people into thinking, you know, you just need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. But if, if my child fell off a swing and was lying there with a broken leg, I would take them to where they could get that fixed. Yes, I would pray for them in the car as we're going, but I would take them to where that problem can be fixed. And I simply want people to know that... Um, Mental illness isn't to do with your spiritual life, usually. It's to do with your brain chemistry. And I think when we can learn to listen more and reach out Mm -hmm. and love. Now, do I believe in miracles? One million percent. Do I believe that God could decide in a moment, Sheila, today, I'm healing you? Absolutely. And I'll tell you about it. But until then, I hold on to the fringe of his robe, and I'm grateful that help is available. Mm. I love that. Can I just ask a follow-up question to that? What mm. would be a better question? I can't think of a much worse question, but although in your gracious nature, you found a wonderful answer to that. Now I am redeemed. But let's just say I, I'm, I'm talking with someone that I know is struggling with mental illness or someone in their home, their family, close to them. What is a better question that we can ask, Sheila? I think you can ask, um, how can I help? There's something about the gift of presence. You know, I think if if we as believers know that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then mm. when you and I walk into a room, the atmosphere should shift because of who lives in us. Mm. So I think when somebody is struggling, you know, sometimes when the pain is the greatest, words should be the fewest. But there's something about simply coming alongside someone. You know, I have someone at the moment who is is really struggling, a long battle. And yesterday, all I did was go over and sat beside her for an hour and held her hand. There wasn't a lot to say, but they're just simply saying, you know what, you're not alone. Um, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be here for you. That is, um, that's, that's such a special gift. And I believe it's part of being the body of Christ. Of You know, in Galatians, Paul writes about bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Two verses on, he says, each man must carry his own load. So I was like, well, what's the difference? But if you look at the original Greek language, bear one another's burdens mean it's like a ship's load. 
it's like what's too much for one person to carry. Mm-hmm. So you come alongside. Each man must carry his own load. It's just what Christ has designed us to carry. But in circumstances where it's too heavy, then we carry them the, the load together. Mm, I love that. Thank you for that. And thank you for helping us to um, not only how to process our own pain, but also how to be um, present um, in others' pains. We don't always have to have the answer. Just Alicia Bertoli yeah. says, give the present of presence. And I think that's, that's a, I power, love that. it's a powerful gift that we can give. Mm-hmm. Your book actually releases tomorrow. I had Yay. the blessing of an advanced copy, but how can we all get it? And where can they connect with you? Find all of your resources, including your brand new book. Well, um, the book's available on Amazon. I think they have the best price at the moment. But if you go to SheilaWalsh.com, we have all sorts of free resources, um, you know, this downloadable study guide and all sorts of different things that, that would be available there. I love that. I follow you on Instagram. I know you're sharing uh, some things from your book there and, and just um, letting us into your life there. So thank you so much. Guys, Sheila is going to pray for us in just a moment. And I know that you have been so blessed by her. I know that I have, Sheila, you've imparted into my life today. Thank you so much. But I love to ask all of my guests this question. And I'm curious, you know, sometimes I try to guess answers, but I really don't know who you're going to say. So other than Jesus, who in heaven, someone in the Bible, who are you most inspired by? They've, they've encouraged you to make life matter. Or you can't wait to meet them or maybe a burning question you want to ask. Who is that person for you? Abraham. Ooh, if okay. you think about it, Abraham lived before we even had the first five books, before we had the Pentateuch, before right. Moses, Abraham lived. I want to know, how did God reveal himself to you? Because you were willing to abandon everything and follow. And then when you messed up, how did you know you were forgiven? This was before Calvary. It was before all that. I would just love to sit down and talk for a a few hundred years to Abraham. I love that. He was a bummer lamb. When you're saying that, I'm like, Abraham was a bummer lamb. I think he got it. And he inspires us to get it. And and you are such an inspiration. I'm just going to close with today's truth that matters. The Lord led me after reading your book, Sheila, to John 14 verses one through three. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. These are Jesus's words. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would not would I have not told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That is our promise of eternity. But you've reminded us today that we have this, the promise of his presence every moment available and accessible to us. So thank you for not only sharing your insight biblically, your wisdom, but just your life with us, Sheila. And is there anything else you want to say to us today before I invite you to pray? No, I'm just so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your faithfulness in ministry all these years. Hmm. I mean, that's one of the greatest gifts, Angela, that we all want to finish well. When anybody asks me, how can I pray for you? I always say, I I want to finish well. Jesus Hmm. is so worth it. He is. He is. Thank you, Sheila. What would you pray for us today? I would love to. Father, what a joy to know that wherever we are at this moment, we're able to gather at the throne of grace and mercy because of Jesus. Lord, I want to thank you for Angela. I pray for increased blessing on her life. I pray for your favor in her life, Lord. But for every single person who's watching, who's listening, Lord, you know us so well. You know every page of our story. So I pray for a fresh anointing over each one, that they would understand at a depth that they've never known before, that they are seen, that they are known, and that they are loved. Thank you that we get to come as we are. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining the conversation. If you've been inspired to make life matter, share a review and subscribe at cpnshows.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Connect with me at angeladenadio.com, Facebook at Angela Donatio VOV, and Instagram at Angela Donatio. Until next week, let's make life matter.